The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 21. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Heath Pfaff, about mysterious mining vessels, object obsessions, vacated vessels, and phantasmic flora. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. (laughs) Space. 
It's both the final frontier and the place where nobody can hear you scream, which is not exactly a ringing endorsement. But there is something to be said about finding opportunity in places that no one else wants to go. Take our friend Connor, who's just signed up for a new opportunity aboard an asteroid mining vessel. It's quiet, simple, and honest work. Sure, the last caretaker committed suicide, and doors seem to open on their own, but surely that's the worst of it. Or, in our first tale from Heath Faff, maybe it's only the beginning. Without further ado, I present to you Section 3. Kraken-class meteor miners were top of the line 120 years ago when they first launched into space. The tech was good enough that all of them were still in service. They'd had upgrades over the years and all of the standard maintenance, but they were working relics. Each mining machine was composed of four separate, three-mile-long platforms with a set of angry rock-grinding teeth running all along their edges. Narrow walkways ran between the sections to allow passage and to keep the platforms aligned. The Kraken would home in on viable targets and use massive tentacle-like arms to draw debris into its teeth to be torn apart, then separated into useful elements that were then spat out into massive storage canisters, and then picked up once a year by interstellar haulers. The entire process was automated. The only crew around were the keepers, one man per platform, whose job was to watch the dials and numbers to make sure nothing unusual was happening and immediately shut things down if something went wrong with the machinery. We were two light hours from the nearest entangled message relay and three light hours from the nearest interstellar ship relay. If there was a problem, we threw the power switch and called for a repair crew. That was it. That was the job. Becoming a keeper on a Kraken wasn't exactly a high-demand job. You were alone for up to two years at a time. For some people, it was a terrifying prospect. But for me, it sounded like the peaceful solidarity that I'd dreamed of. I'd been on the list for a station position for five years before I was called. My platform was Section 3. I'd taken over from another man who had taken his life a few months prior. Some people didn't hold up to the loneliness, and Dormant Energies, the mining group who owned the station, didn't bother to vet the people it sent out to the fringes of known space. Why would they? It was always possible to find another employee. I hadn't asked for details on the last keeper, but as I crawled into bed for my first down cycle, I did find myself questioning if I was lying in the same place the other man had finished himself. It was an unsettling thought. I closed my eyes and tried to sleep. The mining ship was loud. The grinding teeth of the Kraken were separated from me by powerful sound dampening systems, but there were still other noises. There were creaks and groans, and the sound of the heating ducts flexing sent clatters up and down the corridors all night long. The timing was random enough that I had difficulty ignoring it. When morning came around, I was still dead tired, 
but I got up and did my first day of rounds. I walked the full length of my station, checking various readings that I could have also checked from the control panel in my room if I'd been so inclined. It felt good to be up and moving, and the long, nearly straight corridors were great for running. They were narrow, with pipes lining both walls, and only about a foot of headspace, but I knew I wouldn't have to slow down for anyone else. I made it down to the end of the hall, into the final door, into the hopper overlook, the only working one, and paused in my run. The door was open, which was strange, since when I'd been shown around the day before, I'd been certain that everything had been locked down as we left. Of course, I hadn't sealed it myself. Perhaps I should have. The hopper overlook was especially important to Log because it was one of the few places where there was a chance of suffering a breach should something dangerous get through the teeth of the crusher and gouge into the windows within the hoppers. They were, of course, almost impossible to penetrate, but almost wasn't a thing to play with in deep space. I stepped through the door and looked down the viewing deck, which ran three miles back the other way. The window in front of me looked out over a metal bin that was large enough to swallow several complete buildings. It was about half full of what seemed like plain rock to me. The ceiling of the overlook was much taller than the hall, and the walkway was wider as well. It would have made an even better place to run, but watching the ground-up rock debris being dragged into the bins was somewhat unsettling. The perspective was vertigo-inducing. I shrugged and popped back into the hallway, grabbing the door handle and drawing it closed. I turned the circular crank, the grating of the metal locking mechanism, sounding like two large rusty objects rolling over one another. It was a process that required a fair effort. After it was closed, I tested the locking wheel and it wasn't budging without someone putting some sweat into the process. There was no mechanical assist on the door, and it was meant to withstand explosive decompression. I turned around and started back along the main walkway. I was nearly a hundred yards from the cramped hall when I heard the unmistakable sound of the door behind me opening. The grating of metal on metal was accompanied by a dull metallic thud that traveled down the hall in a wave. I could feel it in my bones as it passed me by. A frozen place waiting. If the door had opened, then someone had opened it. If someone had opened it, then they had to be just past that portal, out of sight in the dark. If you think this is funny, it's not. I get it, I'm new you've got to find something to do. But I had a rough night of sleep and I'm in no mood for any of this. Let's cut the crap, all right? Come on out and I'll pour us both a few shots of vodka and we can discuss why we were stupid enough to take a job like this. I didn't want to get off on the wrong foot with anyone, but I didn't have the patience for games. I really just wanted to be left alone, even if that meant getting through whatever hazing bullcrap this was. Some thirty seconds passed, and no one came out to fess up. I sighed and started back down the corridor. There were three doors into the overlook, but only this one was unlocked and functional. 
If they wanted to play around, then I'd play back. I stormed my way down to the door and peered back into the overlook. I couldn't see anyone, so I leaned my head in and called out. I'm locking this door. If you want out, you can contact me from a terminal. I grabbed the door and pulled it back into place. I firmly drew it shut and then set the gears to grinding again. This time, when I had it all the way sealed, I ran my palm over the security lock and sealed the door with the ship's computer. Now it wouldn't open until I went back to my room and released the security lock and then came back out here and used my palm scan to open it. It was an old school way of keeping people from making any hasty decisions in the event of some kind of breach, back when there were four-man crews per section. Only an admin could open the door directly and they'd stopped making admin accounts some time ago. The other two doors were broken. They wouldn't free up in the system. I was told this would be fixed eventually. The store they'd recommended that I leave unlocked because there was nothing worse than walking one and a half miles and realizing you forgot to release the security lock. Well, I wasn't going to play some stupid game. If whoever they were wanted out, they'd have to call me and ask for it. I waited a few minutes and then I turned my back on the door and started to run back to my room. I'd expected someone to jump on the comm line with one of the terminals and tell me it was a joke and that they wanted out. But there was nothing. That was fine. I could be patient. I wasn't the one locked away from the food and water. Inside my room again, I did a quick check of all the gauges and then brought up the security system for the section. There were all of six cameras over the full three-mile station, one at the ends of each of the two walkways, one at each of the midpoints, the one in this hall being just outside my room. These were in place mostly to do visual checks of the passages to make sure everything looked safe. The clarity was good, but the station's natural curvature made it difficult to see too far in any direction. There needed to be four times as many cameras to get everything into view, but I had what I had. I scanned through the three video feeds from the Overlook. I used a lens control to zoom as far as I could to see down the long hall, but the whole place was draped in shadows. I switched to infrared and discovered that only one of the cameras had a working infrared sensor, and that didn't seem to be working right. It was the middle camera, and it kept showing heat flares, some that covered the entire view at times. I switched back to the normal mode and could only see an empty walkway. Wherever they were, they knew how to avoid the cameras, which made sense if they worked there. I leaned back and massaged my temples. It was the first full day, and I was already feeling stressed. I got up and moved into the kitchen to get a drink. The room I was staying in had once been a small block of four units for four people, but they had long ago been retrofitted into a single space. There was a kitchen, a bathroom, a living area, and a workroom. None of the rooms were that large, but having separate rooms made it feel like I had more space than I did. I grabbed a bottle of vodka from the shelf where I'd stowed it the day before, then poured myself a glass that was far too full. I really should be careful. There were no rules about drinking, 
but I only had two bottles to get me through until the next restock, which was a long, long time away. After that first day, things seemed to settle down. I wasn't sure what had happened to the Overlook, but it didn't open again and I never received a message. I left it locked and stopped thinking about it, and for the next few weeks things were peaceful. I woke up one morning after a particularly fitful night of sleep. The pounding reverberation of the cooling ducts had seemed worse that night. I realized that I should have brought earplugs, but I'd been assured that the sound dampening would make certain I wouldn't need them. I looked over all the camera feeds. I'd taken to doing so, though nothing ever showed on them. That done, I set out on my rounds. I wasn't certain why, but I felt a rising trepidation as I approached the end of the one-and-a-half-mile walk to the Section 4 passage. There was no reason to be worried. I just checked the security cams before leaving my room. And yet, I felt an unsettling chill as I drew closer. I could see the door leading to the long walkway that stretched between Section 3 and Section 4 before I was close enough to see the Overlook door. But when I did get within range, I almost tripped over my own feet. The door was open again. There was no security lock active. If you've ever seen something that you knew wasn't supposed to be where it was, or felt the chill of the unknown, you'd understand the feeling that crept into my gut. The door being open wasn't possible. I caught myself, chewing my lip, staring into the darkness at an angle couldn't actually see out onto the overlook. I took another step in that direction. Hello? I called and was happy my voice sounded braver than I felt. There was no answer, so I crept forward again, almost at the door. Hello? How'd you open the door? This is a security violation. Like that meant anything. I took another step forward. A loud thump sounded from the darkness beyond the open portal, and suddenly I was running. There was no logical thought, just pure terror, feeding adrenaline to my system. I ran hard, and I knew, I knew something was chasing me. I was in good enough shape that I could run for the full one and a half miles of the corridor without being spent if I was careful, but the pace that I sat on on the way back down the hall was not at all careful. I must have covered at least a few hundred yards before I risked looking back over my shoulder at what I was certain was following after me. The hall was empty, of course. There was no one behind me, no sound of pursuit, and I was all by myself, breathing hard and trying to get a hold of the panic threatening to shake me apart. The panic gave way to a moment of euphoria triggered by relief. That euphoric moment turned into me feeling stupid for jumping at the sound of what might have been a damned duck banging or someone playing a joke on me. And then that turned into anger. I got increasingly angry as I continued back to my room. I knew I should go back and shut that door, but I wasn't giving anyone else a chance to mess with me. I'd had enough. They wouldn't talk to me. I sure as hell wasn't going to talk to them. I entered my room and went directly to my terminal. I opened the Kraken message system 
and called the other three platforms. The main display split into three sections, all black, while it waited for an answer. Within 15 seconds, two of the windows popped up a message saying that the link through was denied. After another 40 seconds, the third one connected, but there was no picture on the other line. It was only an audio connection. Hello? I half expected for this third line to be nothing but silence. What do you want, Section 3? A gruff voice startled me. It took me a moment to collect myself so as not to berate the one man who'd actually answered. It was Section 4. Do you know who's opening the overlook deck on my section and playing with the locks? I decided not to accuse the man of anything. Though it was conspicuous that he answered without a screen, and that he was also the platform closest to that side of my own platform. The man on the other end sighed. No one's playing with your locks. They're coded so that only the person running the section can use them. Even if someone wanted to mess with you, they couldn't open the door to get onto your platform unless there was a failure on the connecting walkway. I know how the security is supposed to work, but clearly someone's been doing something they shouldn't be, because I locked the overlook door and it was open when I got up today. That doesn't happen on its own. My frayed patience came through a bit in my voice. While I was on a rant, I decided to go all out. Why'd the other two hang up on my call, and why don't you have video? There was silence for a bit, and the only way I knew the call was still connected was that the monitor registered in the line was still open. Listen, this happens every time we get a new person in Section 3, though it usually takes longer. The other guys think the platform's cursed, that talking to you is a waste of time. I just about agree with him, but I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. His phrasing gave me chills, and a cold sweat began to form on my brow. What do you mean, every time? Did they tell you what happened to the last guy? Suicide, right? The man on the other platform said. I nodded, realized I wasn't sure if he could see me, and then said, Yeah, so... This place can be kind of bleak, I get it. In the last two years, that's the fourth suicide in Section 3. His words entered my ears, but it took my brain a moment to put them all in order. There have been four suicides in this section in two years? I repeated that information as though speaking aloud would make it register in a way that made sense. How does that happen? How am I supposed to know? Maybe it's just a string of bad luck. But what I do know is that each time before it happens, the guy in Section 3 starts calling and complaining about locked doors opening and footsteps in the halls. What I can tell you is that the first guy, he was here for 20 years before he died. They asked us to go check on him when he didn't make a report. And there wasn't much left of him. It was... His voice went quiet. We don't know what's wrong with Section 3, but there isn't a thing we can do about it. We file our reports and the corporation sends in a cleanup team and says everything's fine, then a few months later, they bring in someone new. I was indignant. 
You're kidding me. This is some kind of sick joke. You creeps are messed up. Footsteps in the halls. I thought it was the vents, but suddenly it seemed so clear to me. The vents, if they made noise, would do so all the time, not just when I was trying to sleep. It was space. The heat was always running, but I never ever heard it after I'd laid down. That implied intent. Yeah, that's about what I expected. Why do you think the others don't bother answering anymore? I could hear the acknowledgement of futility in his voice. Are you telling me you think this place has... What? A killer on the loose? A murderous ghost, maybe? I laughed a bit, the idea sounded insane. <laughs> this mining platform's haunted. I heard what sounded like someone rubbing stubble on their face. I don't know. But you can check your own door locks and see who opened what. The logs are hard-coded to the physical operation of the door. Every time one's unlocked and opened, someone's tracking key has to be attached. My personal recommendation, though? Get out of Section 3. Request the transport pickup and get out of here as soon as you can. Never look back. Good luck. The call cut out on the channel. I punched up all the other sections and tried again. This time, every single section came back as blocked. I sat back in my chair and tried to shake off the cold fear settling into my bones. It had to be some kind of elaborate joke. I got up and ran over to the door to my room and I locked it. I suddenly felt like I had to, and then I went back to the computer and brought up the door logs. There was a huge list of my movements, each having scanned my subdermal tracking chip. But while I was looking over the list, I found some anomalies. Keith Childs, listed as a Section 3 administrator, had accessed the Overlook deck. Got you, you son of a bitch. I muttered under my breath. I brought up the station staff list. It was short. Ellen Yipler, Billy Weir, Isaac Clerk. The last name on the list was mine, Connor Shepard. I read through the list three times, as though I had somehow missed a name on a list of four, one of which was my own. How could the name not be here? Who was Keith Childs? And why did he have administrative lock access? I searched all of the systems I had access to, but I couldn't find anything. In frustration, I brought up the call center again and tried to place calls to the other sections. Of course, they came back as blocked right away. I got up and paced my room for a moment, thinking, trying to figure out what I needed to do next. Someone else was in my section, and they could get through any door lock. Crap! I went back to the computer logs and looked through them again. And this time, I set a search for Keith Childs. Every hair stood up on my arms. He'd been here. He'd been in my room while I was asleep. He'd accessed my door. I got up and went for my door, unlocking it and passing out into the hall, barely taking the time to slap the lock closed as I moved. I looked both ways, then started running down the hall towards section four. My feet carried me faster than normal, but not so fast that I was exhausted 
when I hit the doors at the end of the hall. The damn overlook passage was open, but I barreled past it quickly and unlocking the connecting passageway door. I checked over my shoulder as the door lock disengaged. Felt like someone was following me. The seal popped and the door opened. I ran through quickly, pulling it shut behind me. The walkways were much shorter than the actual working sections, though they seemed like hair-like strands that stretched through open space between the station segments. I could see the protective wall that covered the working area of the Kraken through the windows, but I wasn't stopping to marvel at its size. I was far too busy running to the next door. I reached the door to section four to put my hand on the pad. A message popped on the screen. Do you wish to request entry permission? I clicked yes and the system chimed. I looked back to look down the way I'd come. I didn't know how long it would take for someone to reach the door, and I would have had to wait there until they arrived. In the meantime, I had to stand there in this narrow stretch of hall and hope nothing came up behind me. Time seemed to crawl, and then a voice at my back scared me so badly that I thought I might lose control of my bladder. I turned around and saw an older man with a scraggly beard and dark eyes. He pressed the comm button. What do you want? I'm not letting you in here. He said the last part firmly. Who is Keith Childs? I asked, looking back over my shoulder at the hall as I spoke to him. Keith Childs? The man looked surprised. Who told you that name? He's been opening doors in my section. Who is he? I pressed on, the illusion of calm a bit beyond my grasp now. Keith's gone. He was the first suicide. The other man answered. It was one of the old caretakers, from just after the shift to single keepers. There's no way he's walking around your section. Trust me, I saw what was left of him. He's dead. I laughed in an almost manic way before I caught hold of myself. Then section three really is haunted. The man on the other side of the door sighed. Go back to your room and get yourself out of here. I wasn't joking about that. I looked back over my shoulder, a sense of dread settled on me, and I suddenly absolutely didn't want to go back the way I'd come. I turned back to section four. Can I come in there and make the call? I don't want to go back. No, he answered quickly. I don't know you and I certainly don't trust you. I can see the fear in his eyes. This had nothing to do with me. He was afraid of letting whatever was in here with me out into his platform section. I thought about arguing, begging, screaming, and pounding on the door separating us, but I knew it would be futile. I could already see the other man withdrawing, stepping back slowly from the window. I'm going to die in here, and it's not going to be suicide, I told him. But... Then he turned and walked away. With no other choices left to me, I began to walk back to my quarters. The hallway had long lines of sight, and if anything came for me, I had no doubt that I would see it before it reached me. What comfort was that, however, when there's nowhere to go? There were two walkways and a few rooms that made up my quarters. There was no place for me to hide and no locks 
that I could put in place to stop whoever or whatever was in there with me. I reached the door back into the platform and checked through the window before unlocking it and entering my own section again. The hatch to the overlook still hung open like a dark window into some unknowable horror. Some part of me wanted to enter that dark place and examine the entire walkway. This was the same part of me that needed to know the answer to every mystery I encountered, but this time it was easy enough to hold and check. Fear was a much stronger motivator. I fled the darkness and made my way back to my room. Nothing stopped me. When I reached the room, the door was locked, as it had been on my departure. I hit the button and nearly jumped inside before turning and locking the door in my wake. I ran from room to room, checking each to make sure they were empty. They were. Finally, convinced I was momentarily safe, I brought up the terminal and began looking at all of the information I could gather from the station documents. Records of the past station keepers were gone. I couldn't access any of their logs or personal information, but what I could access were the reported station checkups. I rolled them back until I reached near the end of Keith's time frame, using the long gaps in records to figure out when the section was unmanned. The strange reports began three months prior to Keith's death. Incident report, possible hull breach, possible decompression of Overlook Section 2. Inspection result, loose panel repaired, sensor replaced. Two weeks later, incident report, air impurity at 300 on the Overlook deck. Inspection result, air filters replaced. One month after that, Incident report, Overlook Hatch 1 impact, seal damaged. Inspection result, door locked with administrative permission. The next day, Incident report, Overlook Hatch 2 impact, seal breached. Inspection result, door locked with administrative permission. I closed the incident reports and opened up the exterior communication channel. It was time to get out of this place. I didn't know what was happening and I didn't need to. I couldn't believe that company investigations hadn't turned up anything. The communications back to the entangled relay were all form letters. I sent the one marked as request for removal from station. I'd tell them what was happening after I was safe. Then I just had to wait. It might take a day or it might take a week. I had no way of knowing. All right, I just had to wait this out now. I could stay in my room until the ship arrived, and then I just had to make my way to the airlock, which was across the hall from where I was. I grabbed my bottle of vodka and sat down in the kitchen, pouring myself a glass to calm my nerves. I'd been here for two weeks. Things had been strange, but I'd be out of here soon enough. I took a long sip of my glass and let the liquid burn its way down my throat. From the other room, my comm system chirped. I hopped up so fast, I almost dropped my glass on the ground. I practically ran to the terminal and brought it up. I could have answered with voice from anywhere, but I wanted to see who I was talking to. The friendly face of someone on their way to pick me up would be welcome. Had I been thinking clearly, I would have known that it wasn't possible for this call to be anyone coming to pick me up. 
It had only been minutes since I'd sent my message. The screen was dark. There was no video signal, but the audio channel was open. Next to the open channel were the words, Overlook Terminal 2. Who's there? I asked. The words came out a little more than a whisper. And I had to repeat them. Who's there? What do you want? Something moved, the sound, a dull thump, followed by the hiss of something being dragged across a wall. On impulse, I punched in the surveillance system and turned it to the middle camera on the overlook. That was right above Terminal 2. It was hard to see what I was looking at. The whole area was cast in shadows. I can hear you. What do you want? I repeated again, most heatedly this time. Why weren't these security feeds recording? What was wrong with this place? Something moved on the screen, something dark and misshapen, passed in front of one of the walkway lights and then vanished into the dark. The motion was accompanied by a sound that was something like rock striking metal and then a dull thump. It sounded a bit like ducks shifting due to temperature change. The line cut out. Terminal 2 was close to where I was, but a broken door stood between me and that terminal. Whatever was there would have to move up to the working door and then come all the way down the hall to get to where I was. However, nothing was stopping it from doing that. What had I even seen? It had seemed big, ungainly. I wanted to tell myself that it had to be a person, someone who was hacking the systems and using Section 3 as their own playground. But how did that make sense? None of this made sense. I heard a massive sound and a red light flashed over the control console. A message popped up on screen. Overlook Hatch 2 Impact. Full integrity breach. Investigate immediately. That sound I'd been hearing every night as I laid down started in the hallway. The clattering bang of something moving down the corridor beyond my door. I got up and went into the kitchen looking for anything that I might use as a weapon. There were no sharp knives because those were a hazard. Finally, I grabbed my second bottle of vodka by the drinking end and held it defensively. The movement stopped. It was outside my room. The moment stretched on, and I was beginning to wonder if whatever it was had left, and then the light by my door turned green and it began to open. The hall lights were partially obscured, and I didn't know what I was looking at, but it moved into the room with some kind of maddening locomotion. It was like a web of flesh and bone, gristle and nerve, given thought and malicious intent. It didn't have limbs so much as protuberances that shot out and stuck to the ground with horrifying thunks. There were eyes in it, some human-looking, others black and awful, too round and too empty. I screamed because it was the only thing my mind would allow me to do as it came forward. The worst part, the thing that sparked the deepest fear within me, was that there were human pieces mixed into it. Bits of hand and spine and fragments of faces. It all wrapped together into a nightmare, and I knew that I was about to become part of that hellish dream. I raised the bottle, knowing it would never be enough. Dormant Energies Memorandum, re-Kraken 221, Section 3. 
Officially, the cause of death for Mr. Shepard will be listed as suicide, and we'll begin placement of a new keeper in two months. Reports from Section 4 in regards to interactions with Mr. Shepard, as well as physical evidence collected at the scene, lead us to believe that the entity aboard Section 3 has become increasingly adept at utilizing the ship's systems and is showing heightened aggression. Attempts to directly communicate with the entity have failed. We've advised Section 1, Section 2, and Section 4 to not interact with Section 3 any further as we continue to study and understand this phenomenon. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot I hope you enjoyed Section 3 by author Heath Pfaff, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale, and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash faff. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash p-f-a-f-f. Here you'll be redirected to his Amazon profile, where you can take a look at his other offerings, including links to his top-rated The Hungering Saga, among other delightful tales of horror and fantasy. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Heath a kind word and let him know you heard about them on this show and that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Hire someone. 
get them to do a little work for you, then get eaten by a horror from beyond the stars. Sounds pretty extreme to avoid having to match their benefits pay, doesn't it? I guess some bottom lines are a little more savage than others. But let's look now at someone who is a beneficiary. A fellow who's managed to get his hands on a large collection of artifacts. Most are just trinkets that any tourist would be happy to pick up. Some, as we will see in our second tale, from Heathfaff, are stored away for very good reason. Without further ado, I present to you the Valley Collection. I was 20 the first time I entered the Valley of Shadows. It's a place that ruins what it touches. Madness, desolation, violence, mayhem. They're not words of description, but words of definition. These are not the things which describe the valley. They're the things which the valley has written onto reality. While my friends had gone off to college, I'd kept my job at my father's pawn shop. I wasn't ambitious enough to move away from the simple life I had. My parents gave me a job and an apartment over their house. I thought life was fulfilling as it was. Things would have stayed that way if not for the death of our town mayor, Philip Scothern. Phil was the last of an old bloodline, a lineage of collectors that dated back over a thousand years, and it was rumored that the Scothorn collection was passed to the family from an even older collection of antiquities. I didn't know any of this at the time. I just thought he was a rich bastard who kicked the bucket, and he was making more work for me because my father had gone to the estate sale and bought as much as he could. I don't even know what half the stuff is, but I want it all cataloged. Google the stuff you don't recognize. Anything that looks like it might be worth a good bit and won't take up too much floor space goes right out into the display cases. Father had spent close to a hundred grand on stuff from the state sale, and our warehouse was just full of it. I didn't mind having to work there for a while. It was quiet. There was a ton of old furniture, and I knew that it was worth a small fortune, but only if we took the time to sell it online. Dad didn't like doing this online stuff, so I'd end up getting that figured out on my own time. He wanted stuff for the floor, so I went to one of many, many boxes labeled Curiosities and opened it. I poured through these boxes for days, organizing things as I went, but then I found a box labeled Valley Collection. It was the first of these crates not simply labeled Curiosities. Inside was one item, a chest. I had to open the crate fully to get the chest out, and when I did, I was surprised to find that it seemed to be of terracotta make. The ceramic was green with rust running from metal fittings, giving it the look of aged copper. Curious about what it might be in the box, I attempted to open it, only to discover the lock was still in working order, or else the box was sealed shut by age. I pulled out the box manifest and read it over to see if it mentioned a key. Old treasure chest found in a room that was otherwise empty. 
The words Valley Collection were on a placard near the door. Box is locked. Key is missing, but if found, it'll be made available to the auction winner. I was disappointed that there apparently was no way to open the box, but I gave it one last look over anyway. The hinges and lock were old and rusty, but they still seemed solid. I thought I might be able to break the terracotta, but that would destroy the value of the box on its own, and it looked very old, and that usually meant valuable. I finished logging it in the book and turned around to find the box open. The lock had been released and the lid had opened. My feeling of confusion was tempered by curiosity. Perhaps while trying to free the lid, I'd set off some kind of hidden opening mechanism. It was easy enough to wave aside any strangeness in exchange for access to the box's interior. I approached it with none of the fear or respect I should have. Inside were things I didn't understand at the time. They all sat on a bed of strange white rocks. I reached into the box and drew out the first item, a piece of glass-like rock about the size of my fist. It was strange to touch, cold and almost humming in my hand, as though something inside it was vibrating at an incredible rate of speed. I didn't like holding it, and I didn't find it pleasant to look at. Later, I determined that it was most likely a piece of trinitite, though a piece that was far older than it could have possibly been. The next item inside the box was a small vial of liquid that was so dark it seemed to absorb light that passed too near it. I pulled this item out as well, but like the rock, it was unpleasant to touch. The vial was just glass with a stopper in the top, but it made my skin crawl to touch the container. I put it down quickly and moved on to the next item. This one was unlike the others. While the other had felt wrong and had immediately made me not like them, this item I had trouble touching for other reasons. It looked like a slightly lopsided black cube, but I couldn't seem to put my hand on it. I reached for it and tried to grip the contours of the box, but suddenly it wasn't in my hand yet I could feel it in my palm. Seeing it not in my hand, but feeling it there at the same time was startling. I shook my head, trying to clear the break between my two different sets of senses. My fingers brushed over the stones in the bottom of the box. They were lighter than they looked, both like bone fragments instead of stone. I staggered backward and my head swam as though I'd been on the verge of blacking out. I blinked, trying to clear my eyes, and the warehouse splintered and crawled away from me, vanishing into an altogether different terrain. I felt sick. My stomach twisted and my head spun as I attempted to make sense of this new madness that was surrounding me. My foot shifted and stuck into the ground at my feet, causing me to fall forward on my knees. I hit hard, crunching down into the loose white stone that covered the ground as far as I could see. White hills rose around me, towering over me on both sides and clawing at the sky above. The night was impossibly black, but for clouds that were white-edged knots of churning anger that swam in the sea of infinite dark beyond them. The sun hung overhead in one direction, but it wasn't the sun I knew. It was a silver disk with a white corona that shone with dark light. 
It hurt me to look at it, but not my eyes. The pain was deep in my chest, and then it radiated up into my head, spiking out into my skull as though growing legs and running wild. I fought back to my feet, finding it difficult to stand on the loose stone, or bone as it might have been. Already I was reeling from this place. It was too alien to comprehend. The shadows came to me next, wafting up from the stones like wisps of black smoke. There were three groups of them, surrounding me in a triangle. I counted ten in one of the groups, and all three looked the same size, but I could focus enough to count the others. I knew they meant harm for me the moment I saw them. What is this place? I asked, and the words sounded close, as though they were being whispered in my ear. I was so startled that I turned to my side, and standing just inches from me was one of the shadow things. I was no longer certain if I'd spoken or if it had. The facial features of the thing were almost impossible to read until a light flickered to life inside its skull, a scalding orange glow that lit up its eye sockets and exploded from a hole where its mouth should be. It had no other features. At that moment, I thought I was dead, that something full of such unbridled malice would surely kill me, but it didn't. It reached forward, a three-pronged hand, and pressed it to my chest. The fingers cut into my chest as if my flesh offered no resistance. I tried to move away only to find that my feet were rooted in place. Pain lanced through my body and the air was filled with an awful dry scraping that came in staccato rasps. Laughter. The shadows were laughing in pleasure at my suffering. I screamed until the dark valley echoed with my voice. Finally, I fell backward. We offer tribute. A voice echoed around me, coming from everywhere at once. The ground that met my back was harder than I expected it to be, and I realized I was staring up at the ceiling of the warehouse. My body ached from head to toe, a pain so bad that I could do nothing but lie upon the floor and weep. Time blurred into a haze of agony that seemed to go on for hours. As the torment finally ebbed away, I pushed myself to a sitting position, reaching up to grab the place on my chest where the shadow thing had touched me. Three holes were torn through my shirt, and when I lifted it to look below, there were three purple and black bruises. Around them was a halo of dark skin that was riddled with small holes. Touching it caused me pain, and a feeling of deep revulsion turned my stomach. I pulled my shirt back down and stood up, and it was only as I did so that I noticed the object on the ground next to me. It was a figurine carved of blue stone that depicted a creature of such bizarre configuration that I couldn't understand the orientation of what I was seeing. It made no sense in accordance with any living thing I knew of, and yet I knew it represented an entity that lived in some space beyond our own. I picked up the object as I got up on shaky legs and I threw it in the box, pushing the lid back down and closing the lock. My hand shook and cold sweat poured from my brow and down my back. Worse, I kept seeing the valley, images of it filling my vision and occluding reality. I knew immediately that I couldn't leave the box there for someone else to find, 
I did what I had to. I remade the inventory sheet and removed all references to the valid collection box, and then I took it and dumped it into the trunk of my car. Hours had passed. It was night, and I'd missed calls on my phone, but none of that mattered. I couldn't think of anything but the valley. I returned home and shoved the box into a spare room in my apartment. I was so afraid of the box that I took the lock off my front door and installed it into the bedroom just so I could lock the thing away. It was a half measure, I knew. I needed time to figure out what I had to do next. There was never a moment where I questioned what I'd seen, what had happened. I bore a physical mark as proof, and the taint of what I'd seen was inside me, a disease that I would never be rid of. The next day, my father repeatedly called until I answered and told him I was sick and wouldn't be in. He took me at my word as I rarely called into work. Those first few hours were spent pacing in front of the door of the room in which I'd locked the box. I knew that my reactions would be construed as strange, but I also understood that the box had to be kept away from others. At this point, I thought it was merely an impulse to protect those around me, but I soon figured out that it was more than that. I began to see the box as mine, a possession that I didn't want to share with anyone. I frequently convinced myself that I was saving others from the valley, but the desire to make it mine was the stronger impulse. It might be difficult to understand why I needed the box. Imagine going through your life in dour normality only to discover that magic was real. To me, it was as though reality had opened up and shown me that the fantastic could be true. I never lost sight of the fact that it was horrible, that this knowledge was a curse. But I allowed myself to believe that the horror was worth suffering through for the pursuit of the mystic. Over time, I resumed some illusion of normality, all the while probing the mysteries of the box. I opened it repeatedly and began a catalog of the items inside. I counted 24 distinct items that were in the box, but just because they were in the box, it didn't mean that I could always see them within the box. Opening the chest allowed me to see two or three items at a time, occasionally, more or less. I took them out and wrote about them in a private journal I kept. They were all tainted, objects of the valley, and they ranged from mundane to unfathomable. It took me two years of study to determine exactly how many objects existed, since it was impossible to discern a pattern to how they came and went. What I did learn quickly is that the Blackstone, the most powerful of the chest's treasures, was also the least frequent to appear. Counting the first encounter that I had with it in the warehouse, it appeared a total of two times in two years. The second time it appeared, I was far too frightened to try and touch it again. The third time was different. By the third appearance of the Blackstone, I'd become completely undone. It was five years after my first visit to the valley and I was living in my family's rundown cabin, having worn out my welcome in their apartment. I'd stopped working and began to spend all of my time with the chest. The cabin was a place they never went anymore, 
on property they almost forgotten they owned. It was in a quiet place where I was less worried that someone might find me and what was mine. With the stone's third appearance, I returned to the valley, and it welcomed me back in a way that only it could. I was a changed man from my last visit, but our familiarity did nothing to ease the pressure of that place. I expected to face the shadows of my first visit, but I was not in the same place when I arrived this time. This time, though I stood still within the valley, bones beneath my feet, I was at the shore of a lake which lapped thickly at the worn bone. The water was black like that in the vial that appeared in the chest. The sense of dread and corruption I felt was as terrible as it had been the first time, and the scars on my chest, the points that had never faded in all the years since I'd gotten them, began to ache deep inside of me. I have questions, I yelled, my voice traveling nowhere as though the air was too thick for it. What is this place? I'd prepared so much I wanted to know, and found myself suddenly afraid that I would get none of the answers I needed. I'd steeled myself to face the shadows again, but there were no sign of them. I heard the crunching of something walking through the bleak white terrain of the valley, and turned to see what it was. The thing behind me wasn't like the shadows from my first visit. This creature looked like a human skeleton with some of the flesh and muscle remaining, but all of it was suffused with a black, tar-like substance that seemed to bind it together. The head had black horns rising from its crown, apparently made of the same material as the tar, that bound the body together. Its dark, empty eyes bore into me. What do you want from me? I began to ask it, but only made it about halfway, before this undead monstrosity flashed forward at unbelievable speed. It was too fast and too strong for me to resist. It grabbed me by the neck and slammed me into the black water at my back. I hit so hard that the air was knocked from my lungs just as my face splashed beneath the surface of the water. I gasped in and felt the foul liquid pull down my throat and into my lungs. Every part of my mind screamed panic, rejecting the liquid filling my lungs. I tried to choke as specks of black began to fill my vision, but whatever was in the lake was somehow sentient. It was trying to climb down my throat even as I attempted to cough it back up. My hands clawed at the grip on my throat, ripping into sticky filth that might as well have been coating steel bars for all that my hands did. My struggling ended quickly. I felt myself die. I woke, gasping for breath and coughing up black filth. I was in the back room of the cabin again, in front of the chest. I pounded a fist into the ground, not sure if I was going to drown or die from the pain in my chest. I pulled my shirt open to look at the wound on my chest and let out a small shriek as I saw that the blackened flesh around the three old bruises had spread even further. The holes were bigger in places, and the corruption was now out halfway onto my chest, covering my lower neck and out onto my shoulder. Worse, I could feel something moving inside of the holes. I dragged myself into the bathroom, where I filled the tub from the rain catcher on the roof. 
The water was cold, but I didn't care as I pulled myself over the side of the tub and into the filled basin. The shock of the cold was nothing compared to anything I'd just experienced. I stayed in the water until the pain finally began to subside. When I did leave the bath, I discovered that my corrupted flesh still felt vaguely as though something was moving from inside of the wounds. Trying to dig in and see what this was just caused me agony, so I ignored the nagging sensation as best I could. I made my way back into the chest room. The chest was still open, and there was a black horn lying on the ground by the puddle I coughed up. I grabbed the new artifact and placed it into the box. The shifting black cube was gone from inside the chest again. I was angry and confused. I felt manipulated, as though I had somehow served the collection when I had been intending to have it serve me. Did I own the Valley Collection, or had it taken a hold of me? That was the first time I considered that, but it wouldn't be the last. Over 16 years, there were four more trips into the Valley, each maiming me further and returning me with a fresh sense of horror and no more answers for the torment. I saw things that no eyes were meant to witness, and never did I get an answer nor did I ever get further than the valley. I began to suspect that the valley was eternal, and that even had I the time to try and walk up one of the hills, I'd find that I'd never escape from the base of the valley. The infection in my flesh had spread with each visit. It was over my shoulders and up my neck, covering most of my torso and back. After the fourth trip, my left eye went blind, becoming white and glassy. At times, I thought I could see something moving within the orb in the mirror. I couldn't visit a doctor. I had no way of explaining what was happening. Too many questions might lead people back to the chest, something that I couldn't conceive of allowing. This entire time, I'd been voraciously reading everything I could find that might have something to do with the Valley Collection. I investigated the Scawthorn family, tracking them back to their roots looking for any mention of the Valley Collection or references to the items I knew to be in the box. There were 29 items now, one new for each of my trips into the Valley. All of my research was for nothing. There was nothing. Nothing. Until, after my fifth visit to the Valley, I looked in the place I should have gone first, my father's warehouse. My parents had died years before, victims of random acts of violence in their own home. I'd inherited all of my father's considerable assets, including the old warehouse. Amongst all of the items I myself had catalogued was a nondescript book titled Consequence. I found it while crawling through the forgotten items that I considered useless for years. On this occasion, I opened it and read randomly from the top of a page in the middle of the book. Larvae-riddled flesh was impossible to treat, though binding spells slow the spread while in the valley. I knew in that one sentence that I had finally found what I'd been looking for since I discovered the chest. I read the entire book, cover to cover, and then immediately started it again, looking for more, 
hoping to find truths hidden within the words that might mean I had misunderstood what I read the first time. The Valley Collection started with the Black Cube, and that cube had always been with the Terracotta Box for as long as anyone knew. There were rules for safely handling the box, but the list was one that I had managed to check off entirely. If there was a method of taking care, I'd already thrown it aside. The book couldn't answer exactly what disregarding these rules meant, but it gave clues. The infection I had, a larval infection caused by the touch of the Valley Guardians, was incurable. At the first stage, it could be cut away, but beyond that, it was too deep to cleanse. Only my close proximity to the box was keeping me alive. If I were to move too far away, the larvae would chew their way out of my body. They'd already taken over vital parts of me. I only didn't notice because they controlled pain reception in my head and kept me alive using that black tar from the valley. Why did they keep me alive? That was simple. I was taking part in a ritual that I hadn't even been aware of. It was a ritual started thousands of years before. Each of the 30 guardians of the valley was giving me a gift, one per trip. In my foolish desire to find answers, I'd contributed more items to the collection than any other recorded caretaker. Only one item remained, and then the ritual would be complete, and that was still a mystery. Whatever might happen, one needs only experience the valley a single time to understand that fulfilling the will of those who stood in rule over such a place would be a grave mistake. I sat in a new type of horror, contemplating what I'd done and what I might do next. There was a mad desire in me to look for the black cube again, to return to the valley one last time, so I might see what awaited with the thirtieth gift. No. I knew I had to stop. I had to become a proper caretaker of the Valley Collection. I'd already done too much damage. I returned to the box, walking into the room to find that the chest was open. The game's over. I talked to it as though it might hear me. There'll be no more trips to the Valley. I'm done. I marched to the chest with the intent of closing and locking the box. But as I leaned over to do so, my eyes caught on the shifting shape of the black cube. I reached forward and then stepped sharply back, grabbing my reaching hand with the other to draw it back. What had I almost done? What was wrong with me? Shakily, I reached out to grab the top of the box and close it, but a prickling along my back made me turn around instead. The room containing the box was already dark. But something darker still stood between me and the door. Finish it. It spoke and pointed at the chest. You can't be here. I tried to keep my voice full of conviction, but it sounded weak even to my ears. It stepped towards me and I turned to face the box again. I didn't mean to, but my legs made the turn without my volition. No! I cried out. But again, I sounded desperate and pathetic. I felt a hand on my arm and looked down to see the shadow gripping my arm. You can't be here, I whispered. We are always here. 
It pulled my arm forward, dragging it down into the box. For just a moment, I thought I glimpsed squirming tendrils rising from my skin and forcing my arm into motion, but then the shadow was there again. I didn't know which was real, but I had to guess it was the worms. I was further out of control than I had thought. Please! I screamed as my fingers snapped out, crawling through the box like a spider to grip the black cube. Laughter rose up around me, dry and brittle. It was a laughter I hadn't heard in many years. Confusion, I realized that my hand was holding something, and when I opened my fingers, it was gone. But I was looking down upon ground covered in small chunks of bone. The hills of the valley rose up around me. A shadow added a 30th item to the valley collection. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope you enjoyed the Valley Collection by author Heath Pfaff, as performed by yours truly. Maybe our friend should have stuck with a collection easier to manage, like bottle caps. After all, when people say you shouldn't let your collection get the better of you, they don't usually mean literally. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash faff. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash P-F-A-F-F. Find out more about the author, as well as seeing what other tales he has to make you think a little bit more about the world you live in. Or think you live in, anyway. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Heath would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. 
It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at chillingtalesfordarknights.com 
and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> the Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.